Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we are back after a week off. Apologies for our absence. Uh, good news, though, instead of doing Death of Cinema this week, we'll be covering three films because we come correct when we take a week off. We're well-rested, and we're back in the saddle. Today, we're going to be talking about the 2016 Dennis Villeneuve film Arrival, uh, the new Joaquin Phoenix vehicle, You Were Never Really Here, and... Rachel Weiss's new movie, Disobedience. But before we get into that, we have some news to get us started. Star Wars Episode Nine is reportedly casting for a new female lead character. Andy, I usually throw to you <laughs> for the news. What do you know about this? Okay, so as we know, Episode Nine will be filming soon and comes out, uh, I believe, next May uh, 2019. Um, so they're casting for a new character named Caro or Caro. Um, and it's described as someone captivating naturalness and ease to her manner, mm. a leader and problem solver, smart with a great sense of humor and strong will. All this comes to her effortless, effortlessly. Effortlessly. Yes. Uh, what's interesting about this to me is when I read like a casting call and, and the description of that, all I can think is like, that sounds like every character in Star Wars ever. Like that's just the most generic open I mean, any 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 rebel uh, in the original trilogy, anybody on the on the light side, I think, in any Star Wars film, could be described uh, with this: captivating naturalist and ease to their manner, leader and problem solver, smart with great sense of humor and strong will. Like that it's sounds like all of them. It's, it's so generic, and yeah. that's okay. That's okay um, because I think they're leaving it open to see kind of what people are are willing to bring to the table as far as uh, auditions go. And also, I, I think there there's obviously more underneath the surface that we don't know because it's a public call, and they don't want the public to know what exactly this character is about. Yeah, probably at the audition that they give you more specifics, yeah. more, more direction. Yeah, they're they're not going to be like uh, you're you're really nice and kind despite your dead parents. Like they're not gonna <laughs> they're not gonna like lay it out for us on the internet. So for what it's worth, I think this is. Um, intriguing and i guess we'll just have to see what the character is about i hope they do more than they do with uh lieutenant holdo from episode eight because i really liked laura dorn's character um and i'd like to see them expand kind of new roles and that's something you've talked about with star wars is yes. the way they need to kind of branch in new new places yeah i think one of the big problems we have with star wars is that you know, in the original trilogy, we just kind of have a handful of characters that people have obsessed over for, for I mean, almost half a century now. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's good to have new characters, new blood, and uh, go in new directions. Um, I know that Disney is wanting to expand the brand to, to kind of essentially have it be like Marvel. Marvel is an umbrella brand for a multitude of characters, and that's what Disney wants to do with Star Wars. They want it to encompass more than just... Han, Luke, and Leia. Right, and I think that's important. And in the case of something like Solo, which is coming out just in a couple of weeks, um, we're not like we're getting a weird hybrid of that. Like yeah. Solo is is new faces, old roles. So we're kind of getting in the middle, uh, and I hope that pays off. Um, but I am interested to see how they kind of grow the franchise outside of that. So yeah. Uh, the next story, Avengers Infinity War passes Justice League at the global box office in just six days. This is a little bit of a holdover story from last week when we weren't on, but I think it still stands. Uh, Andy, is this like the biggest movie of all time? Um, it's looking like it's going to be that way. It's mm. the first film, or not the first film, it got to a billion dollars the fastest. 
um, I think beating The Force Awakens uh, by just one day. So it's it's a huge hit. Um, I don't think that's a surprise uh, to anyone. And anyone who's who's saying we we have superhero fatigue is not really correct at, at this point. <laughs> this is you know part nineteen. Right. Uh, so it shows that we're people aren't getting sick of it. It breaks it a ton of money, and we're probably just going to keep seeing more and more. I mean, we could have this is what end of phase three. I mean, we could have phase four through ten for all I know. I would love to have a conversation with somebody who's uh, an avid viewer of bold cinema who's just outright convinced that we have superhero fatigue because it's it's clearly not true. And I, in a way, I wish it was because, again, like you, you guys heard what I thought leading up to Infinity War. It's the 19th Marvel movie. Like, how many of these are we going to do, you know, before people get tired of it? And clearly Infinity War shows um, a lot because there, there is some staying power in, in this format and people like it. Um, for what it's worth, Infinity War was really well put together, and if we get more movies that kind of feel like that, that draw a kind of emotion from different places that the, the previous films haven't yet, then, then I'm interested. You've got my attention. Um, but you've got to keep moving the goalpost. You've got to keep changing it. You've got you to keep evolving the genre and doing something new with it. And, and I hope um, what comes after Infinity War will continue to do that. I guess we'll just have to see. Right. I always feel like um, the superhero movie is a little bit like the Western in a way. A lot of people will claim that the Western is dead just because it's not the heyday of the Western. But several Westerns come out every single year, some good, some bad. And, I mean, they've been making them for 50, 60, 70 years now. Mm. And so I I think that the superhero genre will be the same. Where it, it, I think we're in the heyday. I think eventually it will slow down. But I think that we will continue to have them made. Sure. I, I think the, the the analogy of the superhero film to the Western film is, is deep and vast and probably worth a bigger conversation. But before we can get to that, uh, which probably, spoiler alert, probably won't happen on this episode, but later, I mean, we should talk about it at some point. The next story, uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life gets a longer Criterion version. Being added to the Criterion Collection has granted Terrence Malick an extra 50, 5-0 yes, minutes five in zero minutes. his brilliant film, The Tree of Life, to be in, to be released on an enhanced special edition Blu-ray and DVD later this year. Andy, have you seen Tree of Life? <laughs> what do you think about this? <laughs> yes. So I saw The Tree of Life in theaters uh, in 2011. Um, and just for our viewers who haven't seen it, it is a two-and-a-half-hour film um, that juxtaposes uh, Brad Pitt raising a family in the 1950s with scenes from the creation of the universe mm -hmm. and evolution of life. So it's this huge kind of larger-than-life, um, massive, epic thing that I don't even remember what it's exactly trying to say, but it's... I mean, it's a it's a huge it's swinging for the fences, right? And, and Tree of Life, it's ambitious. And Tree of yes. Life is is one of it's usually my go to film that I like to reference when I, I think of a movie that going in I I almost didn't want to like it, and then I came out really enjoying it. It, it, it offered me a fresh perspective in a way that I thought um, it wouldn't. I didn't think much of it. I thought it was pretentious drivel. And to be fair, I still kind of do, but <laughs> I liked it. Um, and, and there was a lot to be gained from it, at least me watching it. So when it comes to the tree of life, like, did I like the movie? Absolutely. I, I really did. It was one of my favorite films of the year when it came out. Um, would I watch it again? No. And would I watch an, a, a version that's an extra 50 minutes? Absolutely not. It, is, <laughs> it was already too long. Like it was already too much. Um, I, I don't know why they want to add more. 
Uh, according to this article, apparently there there was rumor of a five hour version that they say doesn't exist. Oh my god! But we've got this one. I'm like, okay, well the first the, the original cut was what two and a half hours, 139 minutes, so two hours and change. Uh, two nineteen. This adds another fifty. You're coming up on three and a half now. It's like, come on, what are we? At least just over three. Like I I, I don't need a five hour cut. I, I just need realistic expectations of like what you can and can't do within the confines of a film. I don't know what an extra 50 minutes would add. Yeah, it, it's already, it's incredibly long and yeah. it's incredibly slow. Like it moves at a snail's pace and that's kind of the point, you know, because I think, you know, time and the and the kind of expanse of time is the is one of the themes. But it's, it's glacial in its pacing and to add almost another hour, like I just can't take it. I like this part in the article before we move on where Criterion President Peter Becker insists that the 139 minute theatrical version of the of the film is the official director's cut and that this version with the extra 50 minutes says he says Terrence Malick does not see this as a director's cut with an extra 50 minutes. He says this is a fresh view of the film that has a different rhythm and a different balance so terrence malick doesn't see this this unreleased non-theatrical cut of the film with extra footage as any kind of director's cut what does that mean it is a director's cut you're the director you cut a different version you released it it's a director's cut that's what that is yeah it's because he wants to reserve that for in 20 years when he releases the five-hour cut oh god yeah it'll be like blade runner and it'll be the the final real real deal i'm not joking director's mm-hmm. cut this time he's so no so, take backs no returns so pretentious all right <laughs> moving on we should probably get to our first film of the week uh, of, of our two weeks i should say andy you have agreed to take the intro for this uh take it away so our next film is you were never really here clearly said you were brutal Uh, which is the new film by Lynn Ramsey, who previously did uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin um, several years ago, which uh, was kind of what put her on the map for me, um, which I, I've only seen about half that movie, but I've heard so much about, about it. Um, you know, real quick, let me jump in. I've only seen half that movie, too. Why did we <laughs> never finish it? I don't know. I don't know. I Okay, anyway, sorry. That's, that's a topic for another time. Um, anyway, so You Were Never Really Here stars Joaquin Phoenix as um, he's not a hitman. He's kind of a hired gun. And he's in this very violent business of rescuing uh, these young girls who are being uh, sex trafficked. Um, at the beginning of the film, he, he just finishes a job and he g- gets another one. And he ends up getting wrapped up in you know a big plot involving highly elected officials uh, as he tries to rescue uh, another girl. But I just want to mention like the plot isn't so much important because the film is really a focus on him as a, a man with who's living with a, a legacy of violence, a history of violence. And it reminded me of strangely enough of Logan, uh, you know, the Wolverine movie, um, cause similar thing. And he almost kind of, he looks kind of like what a real life look, uh, Logan might yeah. um, look like. Um, he's, He's kind of a big guy. He he I, he may have buffed up for the role, but he like he's he's bigger than he usually is. Yeah. Um, but he's scarred up. His he's got lots of scars all over his body from this line of work. Uh, he's very, the film is incredibly violent and shockingly so. Um, it it definitely uh, caught me off guard. Um, Zach, what do you think? 
I, I think this movie reminded me a lot of Logan, sure. It also reminded me a lot of Drive. Um, Nicholas Martin sure. Reffin, I'm sure you probably got the same thing. Uh, I, I did really enjoy the kind of look at the character of, of Joaquin Phoenix's kind of, kind of, I mean, it's safe to say depressed, right? Yeah, yes. Um, manic kind of, kind of hitman um, that he is. The story itself, like, wasn't really that interesting. And it's funny because the film almost, it, like, kind of acknowledged that because a lot, a lot of times it does take the back seat. Yeah. Like, you get these in kind of extreme close-ups on Joaquin Phoenix. You kind of get this emotion that comes out. And then you'll hear, like, in the background, in, like, a muted tone, a news anchor reading a headline that relates to the plot. Like, oh, this senator, something happened or whatever. And you know what that means, like, in, in regards to the film, but, like, that's not where the film focuses. And, like, I appreciated that because it could have... It reminded me also of, like, Man on Fire, that Denzel right. Washington movie. Yeah, because Joaquin Phoenix kind of ends up on this journey to save this young girl and, like, kind of had that going for it. Um, but it wasn't, like, Man on Fire because it didn't put the emphasis on the plot. It put it on the characters and, like, specifically the one. That's what made it so interesting to me is it was much more of, like, an introspective story that really gave Joaquin Phoenix, like, the opportunity to kind of spread his wings and fly a little bit, which a guy like him, I think, is exactly what he needs. Yeah, he, um, you know, we see him as a, a broken person, uh, someone living with a legacy of, of violence, both as... Um, you know, you, you see flashbacks to a very violent childhood as well as time in the combat zone as a soldier. And, you know, he suffers from PTSD. He has, like, you know, nightmares and, and flashbacks. And and um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. This isn't explicitly stated, but he it seems that he's in this line of work because he was maybe a cop at some point and because he finds, um, you know, these girls. Uh, basically a lot of girls in a room or a container that have been um, kind of sex trafficked, but have kind of yeah. been left to die. Sure. Um, so yeah, he's someone dealing with PTSD. He's definitely depressed. He, uh, he's, su I mean, suicidal for mm -hmm. sure as, yeah. as well. And so the movie's kind of about him kind of escaping this cycle of violence and seeking redemption. And it's got an interesting kind of flow to it because in a way, like it kind of sets up, it sets up the chessboard very efficiently and lets you know, okay, here's here's this character, here's kind of what he's about, here's his kind of mark, here's who he needs to get rid of, here's the person he needs to save, here's this person in his life who is important to him. And, and, and it does a good job of kind of showing you all that and then slowly moving the pieces in ways you wouldn't predict, which I enjoyed. Like, uh, you, you've got this character of his mother, I think it is? Yeah, yeah I think it was his, his mom, yeah who's just kind of this charming older woman, like who's just kind of sweet and nice. And she's a little like dementia. You can tell she's a little, a little bitter. Um, and you get through flashbacks to his childhood that, that she was obviously a victim of, of, of the crimes he suffered from as well. in in the form of his father, I think who, who was had to have been beating her at the very right. least also probably him. Um, so she's definitely like, she harbors a lot of that as well as does he they kind of share that together but she's she's kind of the yin to his yang she is the light side to his dark she is she's got white hair she she wears white she's very much like a a, a good wholesome person also but, very frail also very frail beleaguered i was gonna say yeah um 
and it's just it's real charming when you get these moments with him where you you get as close as you can get to a smile from this character uh with her and like that's that's really refreshing and they do a really good job of kind of balancing that with like the dark the bad you know like the the, the evil um yeah, because and it's a very clever kind of balancing act. Yeah, what I was going to say with him, he he speaks very kind of slowly mm-hmm. and a little bit muted. He's very reserved. Like, he's not someone that you would think, other than his size, you know, you wouldn't really think of him someone to be afraid of Yeah. Um, until the violence comes. And when it comes, I mean, I was really floored by a lot of it, but what's interesting is how a lot of times you don't necessarily see it directly. You're, you either see the before or the after. Right. I, I think... <laughs> It's kind of, in one instance, it's literally in your face. There's a shot in the trailer. You can see what I'm talking about. Um, But otherwise, the violence is a clever blend because on the one hand, it's very just at at the screen, blood and gore, Um, almost like it reminded me of like Tim Burton-esque levels of exaggeration, like the blood that that, that flies. In In other bits, they'll have like cutaways. Yeah. Which is kind of weird, yeah. Like there's there's this there's a really interesting little sequence uh, that's shot entirely on security camera footage uh, yeah. of of Joaquin Phoenix kind of working his way into this house and taking out a couple security guards, and you never really see him hitting them. I mean, you kind of do, but like it's security footage, so you don't really get a good look at it. So it's like it could have been much more brutal in certain cases, but it was subdued. It's intentionally pulled back, and I'm not sure why that is exactly. Uh, I kind of I kind of struggled to figure that out during the movie, but. Um, I, mean, I enjoyed it regardless. Yeah, I think, like I said, you never really see it directly in the, in lots of other scenes. Like you'll see the aftermath or or the before. Yeah. Um. In this in that scene with the, all the security cameras, it's it's so effective because because the security footage is no sound either. So mm-hmm. a scene where you would probably hear someone screaming or hear like this pounding. Uh, he he his weapon of choice is a hammer. Right. Um. You don't. It's just completely silent. So it it's kind of numbs you to it in a weird way. I did like like the security camera footage bit. I did like some of the cinematography in this movie. The way the camera kind of it doesn't necessarily move independently, but it's got kind of its own feeling. It's it's got kind of its own action to it, and it felt different from other movies I've I've seen before. If I had to relate it to something, I'd say it kind of reminded me of It Comes at Night, or or not quite like Evil Dead, but but in the way that It Comes at Night has those scenes at night when. Uh, the camera just kind of moves on its own, kind of just drifts through uh, the house. That's what this reminded me of. There's moments when he'll walk off screen and the camera will just kind of slowly pan and follow him over, or you'll get these security camera shots that are really striking. So, like, somebody was certainly having fun making this movie. They they were kind of experimenting and trying different things. Um, And for what it's worth, I, I really enjoyed that. So, yeah, I also liked the way... Um, they use kind of sound to play with how you're perceiving a scene. Um, a fine example that I mentioned earlier would be kind of focusing on him and you hearing muted tones in the background. And that happens a lot in this movie. He'll be sitting in a diner and like every like nothing else is going on. And it's loud. You can hear everything else happening, but it's just kind of just a little muted. Like there's just like a blanket over the mic. Um, and everything's there, and you can hear everything going on, but it doesn't really matter to him, to the main character, to Joaquin Phoenix. And what's intriguing about that uh, ties back into the title, You Were Never Really Here, and implying that Joaquin Phoenix is this character who clearly had a terrible childhood and just lives under the, uh, like off the grid, under society. Like, he's not really a part of anything. 
he's not a part of like the culture that surrounds him. He just kind of drifts through it like a like a like a wanderer in a western rolling in and out of town. And that's what I really liked about it. Like the the way they kind of draw him as this guy who's basically invisible. Nobody no there's nobody in his life really other than the mom. Uh nobody really cares about him and vice versa. He doesn't have anybody around him really. Um and that was fascinating to me. Like yeah. this guy who's somehow incredibly lonely and such a vibrant I think he's in New York City, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Who lives in New York and is just so alone. Um that was really interesting. Uh, so you mentioned the sound. I wanted to talk about uh, the score a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the score by Johnny Greenwood, who did um, the score for Phantom Thread, uh, which was nominated for an Oscar. And going even farther back, he did the score for uh, There Will Be Blood. Oh, wow. Um, which um, which what we get is a very kind of avant-garde score for the most time um, that it really reflects a lot of what's going on. I, in Not only in the scene, but in the character's head, I feel half the time is just kind of this shaken and kind of broken mess yeah I, I i i guess i don't have much else to say about this movie uh the runtime felt sharp that was the one other thing i was going to say did i check my watch i didn't um i i felt kind of tempted at a couple points just because i didn't really know where it was going but it does a clever job of kind of keeping you on the hook uh its transition into its third act i think is one of my favorite parts um and the ending felt a little a little like a misfire, but it makes up for it. And I think you know what I mean. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> so watch out for that. Um, but for what it's worth, uh, I, I did enjoy this movie, um, but I, I can't say it was one of my one of my favorites. And I'm 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 not sure why that is. I think after watching it and thinking about it and bef- getting ready to do this podcast, I would know. But. Um, I guess if if I had if I had to put my finger on it, it's because it, it in the way it felt like drive light kind of right like it reminded me so <laughs> much of drive but there was so much like kind of artistic direction that nicholas winding Refn brought to that movie um and ryan gosling's performance uh kind, kind of made the idea of this kind of drifter grifter lonely character uh at being hero like it, it put it in an ivory tower for me and this movie does not do that. I mean, it's the same kind of setup, but it's the exact opposite. You you look down on this character, um, and and I, I I had trouble getting into it for that. Right. I, I I got to the end of the movie and was just kind of stunned, sitting in my seat, like, well, that was something else. Like I I, <laughs> I don't know how to feel about it. And sometimes the best movies are, are are that that that's how I feel when I walk out of it. So so for some reason, I I didn't think of the um the drive connection. It makes total sense. I see it now. Yeah. I mean, I do I do think that the characters, like who they are, is is fundamentally very different even though they do kind of uh, same thing right and um one thing i wanted to mention and i might be re- be reaching a, a little bit no, is, no. I, is i feel like um his character joe is kind of a christ figure which i usually roll my eyes Ooh, at. okay i usually yeah. roll my eyes at whenever i see that on screen because mm. usually it's really on the nose but yes he does this um you know he saves these people but it's not just that there's this whole water motif that happens several yeah. times in the film yeah yeah um, this might have to wait for after the show because it's more, more spoiler. <laughs> more of this yeah, discussion yeah, will be spoilery. Sure. But I, I saw a lot of connections there to to 
I mean, even though it's he's a very violent character, there's a lot of kind of uh, biblical parallels that I found. Sure, there's this element. I mean, because because you have to ask yourself, why does this guy who who has nothing going for him keep doing it? Right. I mean, that that then that's kind of part of the exploration of the film, um, and it seems to be for other people. Yeah. And at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, when you want to make comparisons to any kind of Christ figure in a film, why do they do anything, right? It's for others. Like, it's being selfless. Um, and that that is very much his character in this movie. So, yeah, I would like to talk more about that. But I don't want to wade too far into spoilers. <laughs> um, for You Were Never Really Here, Andy, would you recommend this movie? Uh, definitely. And I, But I would say, forewarning, it is incredibly violent pretty mm. shockingly uh violent um so if that's not your thing or you have an aversion uh to that i would maybe think twice um or 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 when you make recommendations because i've definitely recommended something that yeah. i loved and then someone else was like what why did you say <laughs> tell me to go see that <laughs> um ha- have you ever seen um the skin i live in with uh, antonio banderas no it's a I can't remember the the director, but it's very disturbing foreign film. Okay, I didn't know that, and I took someone who who was looking for a pick me up to go see that because oh, I was no. like, oh, the, oh, I've heard this thing is great, and then yeah. it was like, why did we watch that? Oh man! Um, but no, I I really liked it, and I thought it was a, a good deep character study uh, about a man kind of plagued with violence. Um, but yeah, th- definitely some things to watch out for. Yeah, I, I I would recommend it with caveats. If you're the kind of person who liked Logan or Drive or, or movies with that kind of individual um, and, and you, you're not averse to the violence um, and you, you can enjoy kind of experimental techniques used in film to make you feel maybe a little deeper than um, a lot of blockbuster um, cinema might make you feel, um, check it out. I... I I'm worried. I, I can't. If this came to a streaming service, which one would it be on? No way Netflix picks it up. Uh, uh, Hulu? Maybe. I would say Amazon. Maybe. Amazon, Amazon yeah. might might so. wade into this one. I, I don't even know if it'll make it over there, but it is the new Lynn Ramsey. Netflix does have... Uh, we, we need we to talk need about to- Kevin? Yeah. I was going to say we should talk about Kevin. We need to talk about Kevin. Yes. Um, I'd love to find out why you never finished that movie. <laughs> I can't remember. It was a while I, I ago. didn't either. So yeah, we, maybe we should check that out at some point. But uh, our next movie of the show, this is 2016's uh, Dennis Villeneuve film, Arrival. There are days that define your story beyond your life. Ah! Like the day they arrived. Arrival is a movie about aliens. Landing, landing on Earth, or really, rather, that happens in the movie. I can't say that's what it's about. Um, Arrival is the story of Amy Adams's Louise Banks, a teacher, uh, a linguist, who is called upon by her country to investigate and help translate the speech of a alien colony. I guess uh, aliens on board a ship that has suddenly just shown up on earth uh 12 ships i think have landed or or made contact um with the earth they've they've hovered precariously close which is why i don't want to say made contact or landed but uh they they've they've kind of beckoned people to come hither and see what they're about uh at select times during the day the aliens open up a hatch in their ship and invite people in to 
try to communicate with them and Louise is called in to help bridge that and help them communicate with the aliens and vice versa and kind of figure out what that's about. The movie also stars Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, Michael Stuhlbarg, um, and a couple other hopefuls, I guess. And Michael Stuhlbarg is interesting because he's only in it for like two scenes, maybe. Like he's he's barely in the movie. But anyway, um, Arrival is a it's a movie based on a short story. I should I short story. I should say that. And, and the reason I say that is because as far as Dennis Villeneuve's work goes, I can only really cite it for Sicario and Blade Runner, the two movies that bookend this. Blade Runner is, of course, based on a previous film. Blade Runner. Sicario, I don't, I don't know if it's based on a movie. I'm not sure. Or, or a book. Um, Andy, what did you think of Arrival? Um, so I, th- I thought that it was absolutely brilliant. It's a brilliant piece of complex... Um, I don't want to say cerebral <laughs> sci-fi. Oh, yeah. um, you know, it's very smart. It's very intelligent. It's very grounded, um, and and it it tackles a piece of science fiction which everyone kind of skips over. Like in in movies where aliens come or we interact with aliens, we can always understand them somehow. Like there's a, there's always <laughs> yeah. uh, like oh we use the translator thing or they mm-hmm. just happen to speak English. Yeah. Um, and so this movie. C- um, you know, goes after this issue of like, if this really happened, we would have a huge communication problem. And so that that's the focus of, you know, Louise Banks' character is trying to communicate and like learn their speech and their language. Um, but fundamentally, the movie's about working together, but not in a, a again, ham-fisted, um, on-the-nose kind of way, because it could easily be that. But it, it does it by showing... The, the downfall of what happens when you don't work together because the whole time uh, the uh, the entire world is on the brink of war because they don't know why the aliens are here, what they're doing, what these ships are about, and everyone just immediately defaults to the worst scenario. Everyone's saying, how are, th- how are they going to attack us? When are they going to attack us? And they, they keep pressuring her into, um, you know, deciphering their language. And what's brilliant is, you know, first she's provided a recording of their their noises their kind of groans and then she pivots and introduces written language and that's that's kind of the first um kind of big step mm-hmm. in understanding um go ahead no sorry I, I i didn't really have a place to jump in here i i was just preparing for my thoughts um yeah i think it's it's fascinating how this story moves its plot or really kind of the medium through which um, the conflict and and resolution, the exposition, everything happens is language. It's fascinating um, because it's so inherently baked into everything we do. So I think almost anybody who speaks English could watch this movie and feel like, okay, I get it because it is very clearly defined. You've got this great kind of foil for, for Louise Banks's character in uh, Forrest Whitaker as Colonel Weber, who is demanding answers and is wondering why her and Jeremy Renner's character, Ian, uh, a physicist, are, are messing around with whiteboards and, and drawing nouns and verbs. And he's like, what are, you, what are you doing? And she's like, no, 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 listen, let me explain. Like, we need to, we need to figure out how they communicate. The best way to do that is with the written word. Here's why. We need to understand if they know what a noun is and what a verb is and how to define those things. Like, the way they kind of explore communication... Um, through the lens of humans trying to talk to aliens is like really fascinating. And it works because you don't have the answers just like the characters in the movie. You don't know how the aliens communicate. We don't know. And we're, we're just as curious as they are. We've got this like incredible spectacle 
of of how they move into the ship and communicate with the aliens. I mean, I think you were talking about it. Didn't you say it was like a half hour or something before they even talk to the... Yeah. 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 Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that uh, this co- relates kind of back to how it's so grounded, you know, because you have a, you know, military setup, you have protocol of they got to wear these big suits when they go on the ship and, you know, all this stuff. And what, what it really, the first time they go on the ship, it takes like a good, like 15 minute sequence. Cause they, they drive to the ship. They go up this lift. There's just, it's so excruciatingly slow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, but it's effective in showing like, this is how kind of a protocol would work or what we would do were we actually interacting with kind of outer space beings. And it's funny, like, to see they've got this great kind of, like, mirror effect. In the one hand, you've got the Americans, I think they're in Montana, trying to speak to the aliens in their uh, on their ship. And on the other hand, you've got over by their kind of home base, uh, Michael Stuhlbarg standing in front of, like, a dozen television screens, all communicating with different countries who all have... A different ship like in, in front of them there's like 12 of them russia china japan canada yeah. like i don't know there's a bunch of them and like they really do play up like this their ability to communicate at one point amy adams's character points out like we need to be have open communication with all of this like everybody needs to be getting information and the way each country tries to learn about the aliens is fascinating like japan is using animals to try to talk to them or games i think yeah, yeah. Uh, which Louise points out is dangerous because that implies there's a win and a loss to everything versus like another country trying to use animals to try to talk to them. And one of them is using food and like everybody's Mask, trying yeah. to do. Yeah, everybody's trying to do something different to try to figure out how to talk to people who are or, or things that are otherworldly that we've never dealt with. And like it's it's really engaging. In fact, I almost wish it had dug into that more, but it is a long film already. And I, right. I, I think they use the time like you said, with the 15-minute ramp-up, surprisingly efficiently, because on the surface it sounds like maybe not. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you also get, I mean, you have these very grounded things about working together, about communication, about the dangers of misunderstanding, but then you also get some really good, you know, out there, brilliant ideas of science fiction, of things that relate to language and time and understanding um, that are very unique and that I haven't seen in, you know, for kind of films before. So I was glad that we got, you know, some of that stuff as, as well. Right. There's also this clever element of not everything is as it seems in this movie. Um, yes. And, and I don't know the best way to talk around this. The movie, it's got this very kind of clever editing technique where you see flashbacks in different spots, which is surreal at first and and that kind of all comes to a head towards the end of the film and that's explained and that plays into the plot in a really clever way and i think that's the best way i can talk yeah. about that without ruining i think it. so too what, what i'll add yeah. to that is that um this was my second time to see it i saw it in the in theaters and it's really brilliant seeing it a second time kind of knowing the story already and it's not it's not one of those like Mulholland Drive or something where you have to see it again to understand it. You can completely understand it the first time, but you get a lot more the se- the second time, and you kind of see how brilliant um, it really is. Right, and that that kind of subplot that runs throughout the movie, it it makes for a very clever like wrapping paper on this story about how we communicate because it conveys like 
it, it starts to ask and answer the question of, of, of why are we here? Why do we do it, right? Why, what is life for? What does it all mean? Um, and that is something I think that comes up in a lot of situations involving aliens and otherworldly beings that you don't understand. You start to question your own mortality. And this movie like does a great job of addressing that through these kind of flashback situations and kind of asking, you know, what, what, what is life really for? Why do we do it? Is it worth it? You know, is it right. worth our time? Uh, is it worth the trouble? Um, and it really leaves you, d despite kind of a, an ending that I thought in a way felt rushed um, and a little, I don't want to say heavy handed, but like it, it hands off the priorities of the film very efficiently, uh, I should say. Because at some point you realize you're not really focused on the aliens anymore. You're more focused on the people on the ground. And when that happens, it's kind of like the end of the movie. And up oh, there you go. That's that's the end. So it kind of it kind of feels like it comes up quick, but it doesn't. It is it is slow. Just a lot comes to a head all at once. A lot of things start to come together. Uh, the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall into place, and then the movie's over. Um, and I enjoyed that, but for pacing, it felt a little. It felt good at first, and then it felt like a, a real big ramp down to the end. Um, right. What, what did you think? Um, I was okay with the pacing. Uh, what I wanted to kind of touch on was, uh, so this is Denny Villeneuve's film before Blade Runner 2049. Yes. And so, especially after seeing this a after that film, I could see, yeah, this is exactly why he was given this other fantastic sci-fi property. Mm -hmm. um, and and also I wanted to touch on the score by uh, Johan Johansson, who um, uh, is no longer with us, tragically. Mm. Um, and you get a lot of th these kind of... Uh, Actually, reminds me a lot of the score in Annihilation. Is where these these really kind of futuristic sounds. It's you know, it's it's not traditional instruments. It's more like a soundscape. And you see, he was originally supposed to do the score for Blade Runner twenty forty nine, um, and then he they scrapped it for whatever reason. Got Hans Zimmer, um, but it's, I, I really enjoyed the score because you do get some traditional music as well as kind of these big like boom. Just kind of a, sound yeah, effects. just a brief aside for. Uh one of the greatest films of this generation, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, did, did he actually record a score? I, th I believe so. And really? Then about, oh, man. Because I, I know about a month before the release, they they swapped. Here's hoping that gets leaked at some point. Because like, as far as like an official release goes, I, I could probably do without. But like, man, if somebody's like, here's five minutes of Johan Johansson's uh, Blade Runner 2049 score. Like, All right, I'll check that out. That's, that's a link worth clicking. Um, I, I did enjoy the music. Yeah, it was very subtle. But effective. It, it had this, yeah, kind of clever kind of mix of that futuristic style that we've kind of seemed to begin adopting in cinema uh, and and also this kind of charming down-to-earth, uh, pardon the pun, not acoustic, but like just a very wholesome feel. And like I enjoyed that. It, it felt like a good balance. It never felt too out of place. It never felt too in place. It was just enough um, to keep it interesting, I guess. So as far as official recommendations go, if, you, if we don't have anything else to say, I feel like I, I do have more, but I'm, feel like I'm just start, <laughs> starting to talk in circles, so I should probably just move on. Um, Andy, would you recommend Arrival? Yeah, absolutely. It's one of, one of his best uh, films. And I mean, to me, he's kind of like the new Christopher Nolan. Uh, Danny Villeneuve has not made a bad film. If you look back, so we have Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, Sicario, Enemy, Prisoners. Enemy's a little out there. That definitely might throw some people. Dude, Enemy is so cool. Oh, I love... You saw, you saw Enemy, yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, man. That's 
for another time. We should go back and watch Enemy sometime. That movie's cool. Yeah, but the yeah, I mean, his catalog right now is just unbelievably impressive. And now he's I he's helming the new adaptation of, of Dune. Dune. Oh man. Which has been attempted several times and failed. Honestly, at this point, if there's anybody I can believe that could do it, it's it's Denis Villeneuve. I hope so, anyway. <sighs> anyway, um, with that being said, right about here, well, I take it back, right about before Arrivals, where we would have had our Tales of the Cinema segment. We're not doing that this week. We're moving on to another movie, one that we're a little conflicted on, or at least I am, I'm going to be honest, because I thought about it, we thought about it, and we had one other movie we could watch for this show. We had a couple options. We could either watched. Melissa McCarthy's new film, Life of the Party, or the new Rachel Weisz film, Disobedience. And <laughs> Life of the Party got a wide release. It went everywhere. And Disobedience is in two theaters in 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 the Metroplex. So that's saying a lot. We're, we're a pretty big little area, I think. And nobody had this movie. Is it getting a wide release or is this it? Yeah, I think this might be it. I think it, this is it. Yeah, it's it's it, it'll do that thing that art house films do, where the, if it picks up steam, it'll get released to what more th- uh, theaters, more screens. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't want to I don't want to keep anybody on their toes that made it this far and doesn't know what we're talking about. Andy, you've also generously agreed to take the plot <laughs> for this film. Um, take it away. So disobedience. This is my house we're talking about. I keep it in order. Is uh, the new film by Sebastian Lelio, who uh, he won the Oscar for Best Foreign Film for A Fantastic Woman. Um, and that film has actually some, similar, some similarities to this one, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but anyways, the film stars Rachel Weisz as Ronit, um, who is a m- member of a very traditional Jewish Orthodox family. At the very beginning of the film, her father has passed away, and so she flies from New York to uh, London, or the London area, to um, uh, go see him and mourn, mourn him attend his funeral. When she arrives, uh, no one's really happy to see her. Uh, people are very, I mean, there's comments like, oh, we, didn't ex- we weren't expecting you. Why are you here? Oh, you, oh you, so you came. Um, it's, and I mean, we're talking about the death of her father. These people are being incredibly rude. Um, and so you kind of find that she's a black sheep as she's been shunned. And the reason is, uh, is probably about 10 years or so before she had a, re- a relationship with, uh, another woman named Esty played by Rachel McAdams. Um, they, they're being in this lesbian relationship in a very traditional Orthodox Jewish family would, w- you know, did not go over well. She was shunned. She left. And so, the film that deals with her navigating having to come back and see all these people, um, her relationship with uh, Esty has since uh, re- not remarried, married um, David, who was a friend of his and or of theirs, and who is also in line to be the next head rabbi at the synagogue, which was previously occupied by her deceased uh, father. So it's a very complex film that deals with. Um, you know, similar to a fantastic woman, it, it deals with modern sexuality clashing with uh, family and tradition. It also stars uh, Alessandro Nivola in the one of the titular roles as David, who is also in or David David. That's it, David. Yeah. Uh, who is also in You Never Really Here, which I didn't know. He plays the governor in that movie. Oh, okay. And is only in 
at best one scene like uh, on television somewhere like in the background but he's in it um you were never really here this movie is interesting uh you mean disobedience disobedience this movie is <laughs> interesting because i i don't want to say i didn't want to like this movie because I, I i didn't feel that way i didn't know how to feel about this movie going in <laughs> Its tagline on its trailer, on its trailer, its tagline on its on its poster is is a a tall order. Love is an act of defiance, and it's like two people who are in love despite religion. And when you say that, the first thing I think, excuse my my lack of bold cinema here, is like one of the goofy trailers that ran like the, the fake trailers that ran in front of Tropic Thunder. Right. That's like. Robert Downey Jr. and Toe for Grace, Toby Maguire, uh, having a relationship in the Catholic faith, even though they're not supposed <laughs> oh, to. God. You remember? Yeah, no. I forget the name of it. Yeah, it's that's a real thing. That's exactly what I think of because it's like that's what this is at its core. Um, but just like you were never really here to drive, this movie takes drastic differences, and it does this in a clever way. First off disobedience and i love it for this does not hold your hand for a second it does not say it like rachel vice's character does not show up and go hi i'm your sister what happened to dad doesn't happen like they just have completely normal conversations and it is up to you to figure that out like yeah. and i love that it does not it, it, yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have of, this white glove approach to movies. Yeah, a lot of the backstory is never explicitly explained. No, you just have to infer a number of things. And but, I love that. Like it it, it, it respects its audience. It says you are intelligent, and we are going to give you a story that you have to connect the dots on. And that's probably my favorite thing about this movie: the way it breadcrumbs the, the plot out to you. It starts out very simple. All right, it's it starts out. Um, to give away just just the beginning, uh, this 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 rabbi who seems very wise passes away. All right, then you get this character in New York City who's a photographer, and then she ends up out by where the rabbi was talking to people who were around him when he died, and you have to figure out how are they connected. And then you do eventually. You're like, oh, I get it. That's the connection. Well, who's that person over there, and why do they care? Why is that guy angry at her? Like. And it just slowly gives that to you piece by piece, like 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 breadcrumbs through a forest. And I loved it. I loved it so much because <laughs> it respected my time and it kept me interested. And I always had a question and it always had an answer. And I never felt like I I was was duped. I never felt like I was tricked. And I never felt like anything was too obvious or bloated. Um, as far as the plot is concerned, and its pacing. What did you think? Um, I, I mean, I really liked the way. Uh, things that develop and the characters change. Um, there's a lot of themes in the, in the film, and you know, one of them is you know acceptance of others, but that's kind of secondary to actually acceptance of self. That's mm. arguably a much more important thing because um, Rachel Weisz's character has accepted who she is and her sexuality, and she chose to to leave. Um, but Esty, who who is you know also a lesbian, has chosen to marry someone, and there's a really heartbreaking moment where she t where she says, "Oh, you know, another rabbi he he um, counseled me and said, oh, you're just sick in the head. You like we can heal you.' I mean, it's it's really sad. It's really heartbreaking. Um, but you know, the movie's not out to like c c to condemn. No religion. No, know? I don't. It's, I don't think it is. Yeah. Like it's it's about 
kind of finding a middle, not necessarily a middle ground, but like respecting yourself as well as respecting tradition and family and the things that are important to that community as well as yourself. Right. No, I, I thought it was a movie. It's about a lot of things, but it's core for me. I felt like it was a movie about happiness. It's, it's, what truly makes you happy? There's this brilliant monologue at the beginning of the movie about God making angels and beasts and man and, and angels who are everything that is good. Beasts are everything that are that are vicious and, and arguably bad in terms of God's creation. And humans who are right in the middle and, and have to choose. Like, And, and it, it does this very clever kind of presentation of having these religious characters who, yeah, look at... Look at uh, being homosexual as being sick, as as being as not understanding, and, and and placing that directly against homosexual characters who understand this is just the way I am. I I don't get a say, and and I love the way it kind of places the idea of of creation and 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 humanity as as being made in God's image in between that and what that means and how you're supposed to perceive religion versus yourself and what you want versus what you think you want. And I loved it. Like I loved it so much. It was like a complex character study and I was into it. And like, I, it was, it was my jam, man. So it was, it was great stuff. Uh, so yeah, sorry. Oh, well, um, Oh, now I've lost my, my train of thought. Uh, I can pick it back up. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, there were the, kind of the three main characters in this movie. The, the three characters that are really important uh, are Rachel Weisz's character of Renette. Ronit. Ronit. I, like, I'm going to struggle with the names yeah, here. That's a good example of how they yeah. didn't hold your hand is I had no idea what her name was really throughout the whole film because everyone said, said it a little bit different. Right. And, and it's a traditional Jewish name, so I had to go like look it up. Yeah, like, like David. Right. It's David, right? But, like, it's not even, like, David. Like, that's so... I, I don't know if I've ever heard it said David before, but this movie just embraced that the whole time. That's his name. Uh, and you've got Este's character. And these three are kind of in this weird swirl. You, you learn... Um, I don't want to say right at the beginning, but pretty quickly that the three of them kind of palled around when they were younger. That was the deal. And, and, and the three of them kind of got along... And you can understand that. You can understand, yeah, having friends and your kids and then growing up and moving away and then kind of jumping back into their lives and how things might be different and how that might be uncomfortable. But what's interesting is this all, This is all presented in this incredible, like, mask of, of a sect of religion that I simply don't understand. Women are walking around wearing wigs and guys have yeah. to wear things all the time and, like, they have this very like cookie cutter section of, I think London is where they are, yeah. right? Yeah, she flies in from New York, um, of their culture kind of placed here. And they have this these specific schools and specific jobs. And like, this this is their whole hemisphere of life. Just in this, it's, almost like a, it's almost like a compound in Utah, except it's in London. Like, and, yeah. it, and this is just the way they do things. And like, it never, yeah, the movie never says that's right or wrong. Never once does it claim to do that. It it just says what is it what does it mean and what's it for? Like if you're not truly happy, if you don't have understanding, how many times can you read the Torah? How many times can you read the debates about the Torah, the notes on the debates, the conversations <laughs> about the notes and the debates about the Torah? Um, to lift, uh, I didn't steal that line directly from the movie, but the concept certainly. I I love that it just puts it all up in the air. It it takes everything we know about about love and religion. And it puts it in a salad bowl and it shakes it up and throws it up <laughs> in the air. 
And you're just, you look at it for a second, frozen there, and it falls back down. Obviously, I like this movie. Um, I, you had a train of thought. You lost it. I hope yes. you're back on it. Well, you, you talked about like the complexities um, that I wanted to get into. Yeah. Is that most of the time in forbidden love stories, you know, a lot of times they, they tend to wrap up a little bit too neatly. And what we get in this uh, story is very complex situations that don't have an e- easy answer. You know, because while Esty is still very much in love with Ronit, she also loves the school that she teaches. She's a teacher, and she teaches at a you know traditional Jewish school. And she said she has these girls that she teaches. It's very important to her, and she doesn't want to leave that or give that up uh, for anything. And it, that's equally as important as you know as Ronit is to her as well. And all the characters kind of have these. Um, almost conflicting interests where it's like, yes, I love this person, but I also have this other situation to deal with. And all the three main characters have a little bit of that. And and again, it makes it very real world where the real world is messy and complex and there aren't easy answers. And we can't just go off and run off with each other because we like each other, you know, like as easy as most films would do something like that. Right. And that, that real world expression is, is like played out perfectly in Rachel Weiss's character, who is this woman from New York who wears two different kind of scarves and like always has her hands almost completely covered up and is smoking and has her hair just all over the place. And like, seems for the, for the most part, I think she says at one point, um, have sexual relations with, multiple different men at will like her life is chaotic like yeah but it's outside of this realm of religion and she doesn't seem to be happy and neither is this character este in in this in this just buried deep in this religion and so you get this wonderful dichotomy because the two of them kind of run up against each other and 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 they can find they seem to find happiness in each other but only for a moment, because then they both quickly realize the other side of the fence, the grass isn't necessarily greener. Like, maybe maybe it's not always great everywhere. You know, maybe maybe everybody's got problems. Um, right. And I, 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 I liked that. And, and they kind of, they addressed it at one point. I mean, it, it, Rachel McAdams' character asks uh, Ra- Rachel Weiss's character. I just realized they're both named Rachel. Uh, you know, are you happy? And she says, yeah. It's like, mm. Like, really, though? Like, you don't yeah. seem happy. You know, you seem pretty miserable. Maybe it's this place and maybe it's the setting, but, like, they, they right. just have this clever presentation. Well, what I was going to say is that a lot of times, you know, especially people, if you're, you know, homosexual and you're very in, in this kind of very strict or religious background, yeah. the choice to leave and be yourself comes with great sacrifice. You know, like, yes, I can go and be myself. I don't have to worry about religion, but that a lot of times that means walking away from friends and family and from tradition. And that's kind of what's happened to Ronit is that she's ostracized completely. I mean, no one was even going to tell her that her father died. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it's a really pretty, she's, pretty she's brutal. listed in the local paper. Uh, her father's listed in the local paper as having no, no yeah, children. Child, yeah, yeah, childless. Like she, she was completely ostracized from this community, and that's horrifying to come back and find. She, she kind of quickly discovers, like you know, you didn't exactly leave on a good foot here. Um, I, I, I did want to talk about the way the movie was shot, and one of the things that really I, I enjoyed in it. The whole movie, or almost the whole movie, is just bleak. It is cloudy yeah. always. Gray. It is gray always. And the real moments of sun you get when the sun breaks through the clouds are when Este and Ronit yes. are together. 
<laughs> I don't want to don't want to understate my moment by uh, not knowing a character's name. Um, like when they first kind of come together and finally click, and they they finally begin to kind of breathe a little life into their relationship. Because at first, you know, it's it's around a funeral. It's very cold. Like it's very unassuming. Um, that is when the sun comes out. That is that is I think the first time in the movie when it is sunny and bright and that's kind of intriguing to me like almost almost any time they're together outside it's sunny uh unless there's something to overhang their situation in which case it's dark again um i loved that like i loved that so much it's such a great visual representation of internal conflict and, and i i really appreciated yep. that i also wanted to mention before sorry to cut you off the music um wacky I think, <laughs> and I was hoping you had more to say about that because the score is something else. Well, the thing that stood out to me is that there's there's several sections where they have you know the they're in the synagogue and they have like the uh, the Jewish men singing mm-hmm. in, in choirs and it does this clever thing where it, they start singing and then that then becomes the the score to what's happening on the film because then different things start happening on camera but their voices are carrying over. It yes. does that twice. It's very effective. Yeah, and it, it layers it too. There's like a whole choir of yeah. men, yeah, like singing hymns or, or what have you. There's also a little bit of non-diegetic like orchestral, I think. Orchestral is what I mean to say. Um, the film opens with it. Right. I know you had a little trouble in yeah. your screening, um, but it, it's it's. What am I looking for here? Caustic. I don't know. I had a weird. It's kind of weird screening. Go at ahead. The beginning, like, so. please, please tell the story. I don't want people to. to okay. Think so, I mean, so yeah. real quick. Um, when my screening started, the sound was distorted, and no one knew because it's art house. No one knew if, yeah. if that was on purpose or not. Sure. So we sat through the f- whole first scene, which is about six or seven minutes. Um, w- not really being able to understand anyone because all the voices were distorted too, and it wasn't until the next scene when they were still distorted that people got up and complained to the management, and right. they, they had to restart it. It's like my theory that I watched uh, La La Land in theaters out of focus because, like, the first third of the movie, <laughs> I'm like, I can't, I can't tell if this is like supposed to be are like this the, or are not. Are we in a dream? <laughs> yeah, and by the time I realized it probably wasn't, it was like too late and it was like, whatever. But um the one other track in the movie that, that kind of stands out to me is an 80s tune oh that's right that's right i forget the name of it i can't remember <laughs> it either uh it's not i will always love you but it's we should have looked it up we yeah. should have looked it up it's fine that's the one other kind of track in there and like honestly in a way i didn't feel like it fit it was a little too on the nose. You're right. Yeah. Because it it's was, a love song. It's a love song. Yeah. And it, it, it again, in a movie with a little bit of orchestral music and, and Jewish male hymns sung by a choir, an 80s love track just doesn't quite fit. And, and like, that's okay. And like, it, it just, it was a little, it, it, the scene in which it plays, like you'll, if you watch this movie, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like it just, it kind of comes at you and you're like, wow, that's on the nose like why would there be an 80s love track in here you know out of, out of all, everything that's happening um but i did enjoy it uh and any other thoughts before we get to recommendations i think we're ready for it for rex what what did you think would you recommend disobedience um i absolutely would but you need to know what you're getting into so i <laughs> yeah. i will say about halfway through my theater three people got up and left and it didn't really seem like they were bored i mean i I thought it was very coincidental with what was happening on screen or specifically in the scene is more about what is being said. Um, 
it wasn't anything explicit or like there, there wasn't any like graphic nudity or anything like that on at the time. So uh, I think it's just important that you know what you're getting into <laughs> with uh, whatever you've seen because I, I could very easily see someone saying, oh, look, it's, it's about uh, the Orthodox Jewish church. Let's go see that. That's, uh, that's part of my culture or religion. And then it's definitely not completely about that. Mm. I, I, man, I loved this movie. I, I liked it so much. Um, I, uh, it might make like a top 10 list for me this year, like that much. I, I enjoyed this movie. Um, as somebody who I, I like to think is a rel- relatively free thinking individual, like this movie asked questions and I loved it. Like I, I, I loved it. I, I loved the character study. I loved the the unique environment in, in, in this deep in this Jewish faith in which this story was told. Um, I loved the way the plot is just kind of, it's not, it's not even close to spoon fed to you. It's the exact opposite way. Um, I, I loved that it expects you to think and keep up with it. Like I, I was, I was engrossed in this movie. If I had any, any downside, any one thing to say is I definitely felt like there were like eight false endings. There were a number. I mean, I mentioned this earlier. There were a number of <laughs> yeah. points. I'm like, you could have. I like. I, I was. I was timing it. I was like, and cut to black right here, and the movie's over. Like, it would have worked. It would have been fine. Uh, so I had a little bit of like a Return of the King kind of thing. But that's. I think that's only because I wanted. I wanted that bow on top of the package. You know, right. I, I wanted it to just be tied up so neat, and it wasn't quite the way I wanted. Um, but I really enjoyed it, and, and I probably won't buy it on Blu-ray. I probably <laughs> will never watch it again. Um, but man, disobedience is a, it's a cool flick. So yeah, that's what I have to say. Absolutely. With that being said, I think that about wraps our show. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, first and foremost, we appreciate if you have made it this far. Thanks. Uh, do us a solid. If you're on iTunes, hit, hit us up for a rating or review. If you can swing it, if you don't, you don't have to review it. Just you know, throw it there, five stars, like four stars, maybe. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> hey, you'd be three if you're that guy. It's fine. Uh, you know, whatever. Um, but we appreciate it. if you're on Google Play, Android, leave us a rating review. If you want to get involved with the show, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. That's the best way to get a hold of us. Drop us a Facebook message. We're terrible at responding, but you can do it. Hit us, uh, slide into our DMs. That's fine. Uh, and check oh, we out. Did, I was. We did. We did have a uh, correspondence. Did we? Forgot. Oh no! Okay. I completely oh, forgot. God. What, what <laughs> we'll be quick to read your correspondence if you email us next week. Uh, so we'll get to that. But between now and then, um, check out our website, uh, offscriptfilmreview.com. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Andy, what can people expect next week? All right. So next week, um, we get back in the summer swing of things, uh, starting with the Deadpool two. Mm. As well as Fahrenheit 451, the new HBO film starring Michael B. Jordan and Michael Shannon. For those of you out there thinking, it's not television, it's HBO. Yeah, okay, I guess you could argue it's not really a movie, but I'm excited to see it. You're excited to see it. I didn't really like the book, so let's see what this can do for me. (laughs) Uh, I I think Ray Bradbury's dumb. And with that being said, that wraps our episode of Off Script. Uh, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper, and this is the home of bold cinema. The home of bold cinema. (laughs) Thanks for listening.